Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Whether it be in the classroom, through her podcast, or self-published meditation journal, teaching is a big part of Shayla Peary's life. A native of Porcupine, Ontario, a village of maybe 3,000 people, Shayla studied political science at university, but pivoted into television writing and production after graduation. Her first breaks in media included promotion and production roles on the Distinguished Artist series and Canadian Idol. Working in television is far from a 9-to-5 gig. 14-hour days are normal, keeping you from family and friends. And as a new mother, Shayla moved into teaching to have more time with her daughter. But her role as an educator has grown beyond the classroom. Shayla's taken increased authorship of her career. She's focused on bringing meditation and wellness to parents and children, helping them deal with personal trauma. I published my first book um, in 2022 in the fall, and it is a an interactive meditation journal. So um, the purpose of the journal is to allow people to dive into maybe things that they went through in their childhood, past traumas, big or small. And um, the premise is it's a nine-week guided meditation program. The meditations um, are provided with the journal. So you would work with one meditation a week and then work with the writing prompts in the journal itself. So uh, that's the premise of of the um, meditation journal. It's called Higher Love. Um, a journal for inner child healing. And I'm quite proud of it. It was a labor of love for about four years. And finally, just put it out into the world um, in 2022. So that feels really good. And um, so the creative uh, producer aspect, I'm uh, constantly creating and pitching concepts for children's television programming that revolve around mindfulness um, for children. And for and for families as a whole, so that that's something I'm constantly doing. Uh, I, I really love um, being creative, and I, I feel like it's part of my my life's work and my life's path to help bring um, sort of this concept of conscious parenting out into the world, out into the mainstream more and more. And the other aspect of being a creative producer for me entails uh, producing my podcast called Mindfulness for the Modern Family. And um, the concept behind the podcast is that we dive into the world of parenting today. And it's for anyone who wants to hear about others' experiences with family dynamics and raising kids. And uh, we talk about everything. We talk about navigating difficult situations, careers, life and love, and um, really focusing though through the lens of how mindfulness comes into play as we go through our daily lives. So just going into the journal that you've put together, Higher Love, a journal for inner child healing meditations. I learned something interesting about this uh, a couple of weeks ago. And apparently, if you write down your traumatic events, and they can be incredibly traumatic or they don't have to be that traumatic, apparently it moves it from one part of the brain to another. And it moves it to a part of the brain that makes it easier to, I don't know if accept is the right word or deal with it, but there are like some really, really big psychological benefits to doing that. So I have been a guided meditation. Um, teacher here in Toronto for eight years now. And I studied guided meditation for years before that. And what I have found with the type of guided meditation that I lead is um, there's huge transformation that happens within the group with my students. And it's happened over and over again. And so it's not only the process of 
working through whatever trauma you need to work through while in that meditative state. Um, you know, the meditations actually guide the individual through connecting with your inner child in meditation. It's quite beautiful and it's really profound. And um, the work that's done within that med med meditative state is, um, is, is really powerful, um, you know, for the psyche and it encourages um, people to actually let go and release, right? Anything that no longer, no longer serves you. And then going through and reflecting on what you experienced with the journal itself is, um, is where that writing component comes in, which is so, so powerful as well. Okay, I've got a silly question about meditation. How can someone with a short attention span, undiagnosed or otherwise, get through meditation or, or just get into it altogether. Cause it's something that I've tried quite a bit and I find I lose myself after a minute. Like my mind is just all over the place. I've heard that a lot. And from my experience and from the people that I've worked with, uh, the type of guided meditation that I lead really allows for the person to stay within the meditation. So I'm speaking throughout the entire meditation. There are gaps uh, maybe for a minute or two as you're working through your own um, integration and healing processes while you're in the meditative state. Um, but this type of meditation is so beneficial for people who have trouble um, focusing or staying with something like meditation because I'm my voice is leading you the entire time. Uh, and so, of course, I'm not the only type of person who I'm not the only person who does this type of guided meditation, um, but it is so, so beneficial for people who do have difficulty getting into it. And the great thing is, is that um, with the recordings that are available through the journal, um, they're there for you forever. So if you um, do the first week and um, you're finding maybe the first time, the first two times you're having difficulty, you can work with the meditation as many times as you need to um, until you really feel yourself uh, relax into that state of, um, of relaxation and, and, and inner peace. Let's take a step back and go all the way back to the beginning. Where are you from? I'm originally from Timmins, Ontario, which is a really small mining community in Northern Ontario. Um, I grew up there until I was 12. And uh, from there, I moved to British Columbia, a town called Maple Ridge. And Maple Ridge is, a, is, a, is about as far from Vancouver as um, Mississauga is from Toronto. So I, I lived there until I was about 17. And then my entire family moved back to back to Ontario. And I've been here ever since. Moved to Toronto when I was uh, about 21, I think. Okay. So when you bring up Timmins, how many times do people ask you if you know Shania Twain? <laughs> every time. <laughs> yeah. Every single time. I don't actually, unfortunately, but I have seen her perform and she's obviously incredible. Love her. Big fan. Let's go a little bit deeper though. Even though you're from Timmins, technically you're from, is it Porcupine? Ontario? Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'm from uh, Porcupine. So I grew up outside of town um, in the middle of the in the middle of the forest, basically in the middle of the boreal forest. It was absolutely beautiful. We had so much freedom. Um, you know, I was in nature constantly and we just were in the forest all the time. And yeah, it was beautiful. It was a beautiful I, upbringing. I've never been to Timmins, but I've been pretty close. When I was growing up, my mom took my brother and I to uh, Cochrane, Ontario. And oh, we, very did, close. we did the whole Polar Bear Express all the way up oh, to, cool. uh, was it Moosonee? Yeah. 
Yeah, because that's right. Moose Factory Island is the actual island. You can't take a train there. So I'm somewhat familiar with the neighborhood from the early (laughs) 90s, I should say, early to mid 90s, what it was what it was like there. So when you went to Maple Ridge, BC, because I have to imagine that the school you were going to, because what Porcupine had how many people again? The village itself, it's not actually a village, but I I think there was maybe 2000 people in South Porcupine and Porcupine, which are the two communities. Wait, it was broken into two parts? Oh my God. (laughs) You guys get really granular. I know. So it's Porcupine Lake. And so there's Porcupine on one side of the lake and South Porcupine on the other side of the lake. And then as you head towards Timmins, you go through Schumacher. And then finally you get to the big city of Timmins. Okay. So what was the average class size? Like you're in, you're in the second or third grade. How many peers do you have? And is there even more than one second or third grade class even? Um, I remember there being a couple of split classes and uh, I don't know, there, there might've been like 20 kids, 25 kids in each class from what I remember. And I had, I grew up with maybe six girls, the same six girls in my class. So in order to kind of get to that, those 20 students, you had to have a split class. I actually don't know why they had split classes, but sometimes there was a grade two class and then there was a grade two, three class kind of thing. So there was like a handful of grade twos and with the grade threes. So when you did moved, you, to Ma- did you have that? I had a split class. I was in a couple of split classes, but yeah. it's just because they would cram something like 30 kids in a class. And it turned out that they had something like, I don't know, 70 or 72 kids in that grade altogether. And the grade above or the grade below was a little bit smaller. So they'd be like, fine, class number one has 30, class number two has 30. And right. then we're going to put the other 10 grade twos mixed with the third grades or the first graders. So that, that's what they used to do. And I'm from okay. Mississauga. So that's, that's basically what, uh, what the norm was. But when you got to Maple Ridge, BC, though, was yeah. there a bit of kind of, I guess you could sort of say internal culture shock, like you got dropped into, because you describe it as yeah. kind of being like Vancouver's answer to Mississauga. And Mississauga is yeah. pretty big. When we moved to Maple Ridge, it was, um, I think the population was somewhere around let's say 50,000, maybe 60,000. And then by the time we left, it was uh, um, almost up to 200,000. So it experienced a huge boom because it was a suburb of Vancouver. And so, yeah, it experienced um, really uh, fast growth while we were there. Um, So yeah, I didn't, the public school I went to, I moved in grade seven uh, and it was 1992. And uh, it was sort of the same kind of class size but it was it was very different and it was a huge shock but I have to say I loved loved living in British Columbia you know we went to salmon hatcheries and saw salmon hatch and um, we did a lot of things in the mountains Um, the um, golden years mountains were in maple or in maple ridge and very close to where I lived so yeah I loved experiencing the different culture out there and the different um, you know sort of natural environment out there was pretty amazing what were your interests or hobbies growing up? Well, as a kid in Timmins, uh, I danced. I did every kind of dance you can imagine, and I figure skated. Um, and I was always into art. Oh, I also cross-country skied, and I was on the cross-country ski team. Um, that was fun. And I always um, cross-country ran, but I was never a good runner, but I always did try, even in high school. But uh, And then when we moved to BC... I sort of, um, oh, I got more into painting. So I did painting classes and I went, uh, I became part of a choir called the West Coast Youth Ensemble. And we used to perform all over the lower mainland and even into the interior. And that was really fun. Uh, we performed at the Orthium 
Orpheum Theater one time, which was incredible. I'll always remember that. So cross-country skiing in Porcupine or in Timmins, was that yeah. a sport or was that a way to get around? And I mean that sincerely. <laughs> you know, it could have been either, but it was a sport. I, yeah, it was it was a sport. But I remember as a little kid, my dad would pull my brother and I on a toboggan behind him as he cross-country skied through the, the forest. So it could be either. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so you were a big fan of the 90s, or still are a big fan of the 90s like I am. I remember those years quite fondly, but why did you have a fondness specifically for Drew Barrymore? Oh, she was such a free spirit. I just loved her. Um, I love. I just always thought she was so cool, and she seemed like such a flower child, which I always really uh, looked up to and admired. I guess I'm kind of a, a free spirit myself. Um, so, yeah, I always thought she was the coolest. And she's a gentrified talk show host now. Yes, I see that. Good for her. Good for her. I've been seeing her on, it's been, it's pre-roll running on YouTube, but it's been for her show and everything she's been doing with Pluto TV. It seems like they've gone all in on her and she's gone all in on them. I think a lot of actors have that plan B for themselves, right? Because there comes a point, especially as a woman, where you're not getting cast as much as you used to. So this is great that at this phase in her life, she's got this um, going on for her. I think it's fantastic. It's true. It's kind of like what Reese Witherspoon is doing. Like you kind of see her like she still does a lot of uh, she still does a lot of TV and, and, and film. I think she's got a new film coming out with Ashton Kutcher. But you find that she's got a, a kind of uh, an ownership stake in everything she does. Like she'll, she yeah. won't just act anymore. She pops up as producer everywhere yeah. or writer or anything like that. Yeah, super important. And also probably a sincere interest, too. Um, I actually started off in, in TV production uh, I, before I had my daughter, my daughter's 16 now. Um, so I, I loved TV production and working behind the scenes and working on set and, and that whole aspect. So I think that um, as an actor, being drawn to production in that way is a pretty natural thing. I've had a chance to be on TV sets as well, and I'll say they're quite magical. And something that I try to watch a lot of are sort of the behind the scenes that you get on a Blu-ray or if they throw it up on YouTube for a film. And I got to say, it's kind of depressing to see these sound stages, which are just giant green screens now. Oh, yeah. Like, it's, it kind of sucks the magic out of it. Yeah, it does when you see the behind the scenes, that's for sure. But You're when you get to watch something like um, Avatar, maybe it's worth it. See, you know what I, will, I really want to ask an actor that's done a film that's been pretty much all on a green screen is, do you have to work a little bit harder? Like, do you need to have some sort of hyperactive imagination? Because you have to think about it. Like, let's say you're doing a film like Transformers and they're like this giant robots chasing you down the street. But in reality, it's you on a green screen and maybe there's a set guy in green spandex with a tennis ball running after you. <laughs> like, 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 how do you how do you freak out to that? And it's funny because even though those films aren't critically acclaimed, unlikely to win Oscars, you kind of have to take a step back and go, that actor really had to go all in. They did not have any sort of like visual aids at all to yeah. assist in their craft. So maybe just maybe we should be throwing an award or two at, you know, best actor or actress for freaking out on a green screen <laughs> set. <laughs> that is such a good point. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. But uh, really, you'd need to flex your acting chops uh, even more, I think. Absolutely. When I have a guest, I always like to ask them what their first job was. And usually it comes from one of three categories, retail, babysitting or fast food. Yeah. <laughs> you were fast food. So why McDonald's? 
Um, all my friends work there. I, I, I wasn't even 14 yet. I was 13 and I was turning 14 in a couple of months. And I didn't even tell my parents. I was so determined to get my own job because I just wanted to buy all the clothes in the mall. And uh, I was never allowed to. So I went and I walked in and I had my resume, which probably had a babysitting job on it or two. And that's it. And they hired me on the spot. So I just I went home that day and said, yeah, I have a job. I work at McDonald's now. And it was so fun. Um, so many kids at my high school worked there and we just had a blast. Just I really enjoyed it. I, I think I worked there until I was 16. Were you working cash at the front or were you working in the back on, say, like the grill or the deep fryer? I was working cash at the front and then I got moved to the drive through, which was the elite cashier position. Very proud to say. So I worked drive through most of the time after a while. Yeah, it was it was great. Did you find that job stressful? Because it is a fast paced environment. I found the drive through less stressful than working at the front. And of course, you know, accidents happen. And one time I didn't put um, the lid on properly for Ooh, a. Uh, I know yeah. where this is going already. Yeah. <laughs> for a cop and it's built. So some things like that happen already. And I have a really cringy story if you want me to tell you. Yes. I'll, I'll tell you. Okay. So I was probably 15, maybe going on 16 at the, at the time. And I was really into wearing um, press on nails. I don't know if you're familiar with those, but you like, I'm, them I'm onto familiar your with press on nails and I can already <laughs> sense where this is going. <laughs> yeah. So I was at the fry station um, getting fries oh, for no. an order. Oh yeah. And I, I served the order and this is through the drive-thru and I looked down and I was missing um, one of my fingernails. And to this day, I have no idea what happened to it. I don't know if it was melted in the grease or if it was in the fries. Jeez. Oh, yeah. oh, it might <laughs> not even bad. have survived. <laughs> yeah. So well, that's my, my cringy uh, McDonald's story. Well, I don't think it was toxic if someone did ingest it in some way, <laughs> shape or form. Hopefully not. <laughs> what did you learn about yourself in your first job working fast food? Oh, you know, you le you learn um, um, troubleshooting, problem solving. You learn how to multitask. You do learn how to work under pressure. You learn how to work within a team um, and really uh, become a valued member of a team. You know, we had um, even the managers there uh, were all very young. I think the oldest manager was maybe 22. So you really um, get that sense of what it's like to be part of a team and know that you're important. Um, it was a really, really uh, great work environment to develop those skills in. And I know a lot of people say that about their first job at McDonald's, that it was just a really valuable experience. Um, yeah, you learn responsibility, too. You know, you've got to be somewhere at six in the morning, and that's where you're going to be on Saturdays. So at what point did you decide that you wanted to get into TV writing and production? And what brought you to Humber? Why did you decide to go there to hone your craft? Mm -hmm. It was actually between PR and um, TV writing and production. And basically, you know, my parents are were of that old school mentality. I was always such a creative person and I wanted to go into um, graphic design or interior design or something like that. But they really insisted that I needed to go to university. And um, so I did. And I just didn't have any idea what I wanted to do. So I got a BA in English. I got an, a, an honors BA in political science. And then I just you know, I worked as a secretary at a law firm. <laughs> there's really not much, there's not many jobs that you can get from that sort of like undergrad degree situation. So I am. Um, You're I, not alone with that. A lot of people get their uh, degrees and they kind of have to start somewhere. And it's usually not connected back to what they had spent four years studying. 
Exactly, exactly. Because they want real world experience and university doesn't necessarily offer that. So it's like this weird circle that you got get caught into. So I wanted to go to college to get something practical. And then I read the course description um, for the TV writing and producing. And I was almost, almost going into PR. And then I just fell in love with the description. I was like, this is what I want to do. So um, I, I, I did the program and I, I got to do many, many different roles within the program. Like I was a first AD, I directed and uh, produced a video profile for a woman of distinction award. Um, I was a, I did wardrobe. I did all kinds of really cool things. I did talent wrangling at the Gemini awards. So it was just a really cool experience. And then Humber at that time had their own television show called um, the distinguished artist series. And I was a promotions producer on that show, um, got, um, you know, garnering the crowd, uh, promoting the show, getting the crowd in for different shows, which was not difficult because we had guests in like Billy Crystal and all sorts of super. Whoa, go Billy Crystal. Yeah, it was incredible. Like the Billy, like we're talking city slickers. Like, yes, I think he's hosted the Oscars. (laughs) What five? Every time they just need someone to jump in after someone gets canceled. It's just like, give the show to Billy Crystal. Yeah, we had Billy Crystal. Did you get a chance to talk to him? Like, I didn't talk to him, but I was in the front row during his um, during his interview. So our our professors um, at, in that program were like leading industry people. It was um, uh, you know people who had created and and were writers on the Love Boat and and all these big names. So um, one of the the teachers' name is Lauren Froman, and he is good friends with Billy Crystal. So he got him on the show along with many many other people. And so that was just, yeah, a really cool experience. And then from there, I started working on Canadian Idol. I think it was in its second season. Um, got to travel around Ontario, go to go to the auditions, sit in with the judges. And um, that was neat. So uh, at that same time, I I was engaged, actually, at that time and um, ended up having my daughter. So I got pregnant, uh, but I was, had been engaged for six months. I'd been with my first husband for, for years at that time, since we were about 20, I was 21, uh, very young. And uh, so I ended up having my daughter uh, just as I was graduating from TV writing and producing. And, um, you know, I just, I didn't know enough about the industry that at that time, I didn't, I wasn't privy to all of the jobs I could have Um, got at the actual production companies working sort of in an office. So for whatever reason, I just thought that I had to change careers and that I couldn't work on set with her as a baby for 14 hours a day, because that had been my experience so far within the industry. So I decided to jump out of the industry and I went into my master's degree and I started teaching. And then I've taught um, off and on for many, many years um, since then. Uh, But, you know, about I'd say about um, six years ago, seven years ago, I, I decided that I really wanted to get more uh, back into um, the world of TV. And so I started working at an advertising agency and I was doing um, client services there. So project management, relationship management. And then I moved to We Charity from there and did the same, same role there. So um, yeah, so I've been fortunate enough to like get back into um the industry in that way, uh, slowly but surely. So that feels really good. So do you get a little starstruck when you meet talent like Billy Crystal or you get close enough? Because what, what was it the Juno Awards you said or the Gemini's where you were a talent uh, talent manager? 
So that's a funny story. So yes, I was a talent wrangler at talent wrangler. That's it. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I was a talent wrangler at the Gemini Awards, but also um, it's always something, which is Gilda Radner's uh, charity show. Um, I'm not very sure. Familiar if it's Gilda, still... Very familiar yeah. with Gilda Radner from Saturday Night Live. Right. So um, I was. I grew up in Timmins. Brian Adams is a big deal in Timmins and, or, you know, I'm sure he still is, but in the eighties, he was like the biggest deal. So I was Brian Adams talent wrangler and I had to go into his dressing room and get his dressing room ready and his tea. And he walked in while I was in there. He was a little bit early and I couldn't speak. Like I couldn't even talk. I was so starstruck and I don't usually get starstruck, but for Brian Adams, I was just like, I couldn't even talk. And it was a little embarrassing, but <laughs> I'm sure he's used to it. But that's one of the challenges of of that position is that you have to treat the talent like they're just anyone else. Like you have to be like, Mr. Adams, we need you on stage in five minutes. No, Mr. Adams, you don't have time for another beer. Get your ass on stage. Like that's the <laughs> yeah. kind of stuff you have to be. You're not like, oh, my God, can I get your autograph? OK, so let me ask you this then. Yeah, this was something that someone had told me years ago who worked with talent. They said that if the talent's management is very easygoing. It's you. It usually means that the talent is uh, very difficult, and so what they're trying to do is compensate. However, if the talent, the talent's management, is very difficult, it means that the talent itself is a pushover and needs to be guided. Did you find that? Like, did you mesh with uh, their management at any time, or were you just dealing directly with the talent on an ad hoc basis? I was just dealing with the talent. I. Um... To my knowledge, his manager was not backstage. And, you know, I mean, we're going back like 16, 17 years at this point, but it was him and there were some other band members and they were super easy going. They were the nicest. So, um, yeah, I didn't I didn't have that experience. I, I don't think the, his manager was there. Did he have like a crazy rider where it's like if I don't have like 17 pine scented candles, I'm not going on no, or I need to like because you hear about mm -hmm. that sort of stuff with uh, especially <laughs> musicians. Yeah, no, it was tea and honey. It was the the easiest. That was it. Tea and honey. Maybe one other thing, but yeah, it was pretty easy going. Pretty, pretty low key. Okay, I want to jump into your academic career a bit, and that is as a program director, as a professor, and instructor. So you made that pivot into it. So let's start first with Northern College of Applied Arts and Technology. I'm going to mess up that acronym as we go through this chat. So, <laughs> what brought you there, and what did your role as program director entail? Yeah, so um, that was my first job after graduating from my master's degree. Unfortunately, uh, my first marriage uh, did not work out. And so I was a single mother um, at that time. And my daughter was about, I'd say she was about three. So um, I took the role as um, program uh, director of the learning innovation and in, uh, learning technology and innovation department. Uh, it was a mat leave position. So I had the opportunity to take this amazing role in Northern Ontario. I, I, uh, I went to the Haleberry campus and I just, um, I was training faculty members on different learning innovation technologies um, to help with student success, to help with student engagement in the classroom and also um, remotely because there's a lot of remote students um, at Northern College as well. And they were a bit ahead of their time because, um, you know, this was uh, quite a while ago and they did have a lot of remote offerings uh, back then. Um, so yeah, it was really interesting. And I, I was a little self-conscious. I was, you know, um, I had no experience teaching and here I was teaching these veterans of 
25, 30 years, <laughs> these, these, these techniques, but I just approached it as, listen, I've been doing research and this is what I've come across. And this is what, um, this is what the outcome can be if you incorporate this into your classroom. And, and people were uh, uh, really receptive to, to everything for the most part. Yeah, it was, um, it was really interesting. And you went on to teach as well at St. Clair College in Windsor and then George Brown College in Toronto as well. Did What were yeah. the differences between, I mean, apart from there potentially being different programs, what was the differences between teaching at, say, those colleges versus NCAAT? Did I get the acronym right? <laughs> Northern College of Applied Arts and Technology. Um, you might have, I'll have to write that down to figure it out. <laughs> um, I think so. Uh, I... Um, at St. Clair, I got to use, I got to teach um, a lot of sociology, which is within um, the specialty that I did for my master's degree. I did a, a degree in cultural studies, which is a branch of so- sociology. So I absolutely adored teaching uh, all things sociology and, and current events and um I really like cultural studies and sociology because it's there's a lot of theory, there's a lot of academic theory, but then it talks about how to put that theory, um, that philosophy into real world practice to benefit society. So I uh, really enjoyed that at St. Clair. And then um, to George Brown, uh, I, I, as soon as I could move back to Toronto, I did. So I've been back in the city now for almost nine years and teaching a lot of college English, business communications, um, courses like that at George Brown. And that's been really great for me. So I, I actually taught uh, remotely during the pandemic at George Brown. And um, yeah, it's uh, it was fantastic. It was a really, uh, really great thing to be able to, um, you know, sort of go back and forth to um, when I need to. So you settled into remote uh, teaching quite well because I've got friends who are teachers and they were ripping their hair out. Well, luckily I had experience doing it from Northern College. So I was actually really familiar with that aspect of using Blackboard in that way and remote teaching. Um, it, the, the thing that was difficult about it is no one turns their camera on and there's not that same sense of classroom and community. So that was absolutely, that was difficult. Um, but I just tried to remind myself that, you know, I, everyone at that time was just going through such a difficult time. And I'm, I was just there to try to help facilitate their success and their program however I could. So uh, I would say definitely there was a lot more understanding and leniency while I was teaching during the pandemic, for sure. And so your return to media, though, was at Union. I'm very familiar with the agency, unfortunately, or fortunate for them because they had a bit of an exit. It was it's now Donor North. It was acquired. Yeah. It, it was the old CPNB. And then I think it was the owners after CPNB had shut down had basically taken. I don't know if it was the assets and I don't want to tell their story for them because I, I don't know. And it became Union. And I've got a couple of friends and clients that uh, actually were at Union and they've moved on from there now. But what was it like getting back into media, especially being on that side of it? Because a lot of your media training prior to that had been on the production side. So were you working technically on the media side at Union or were you more on the creative side? Uh, more of, I would say, the technical side in terms of it was a project management role. So when you're in client services in the ad industry, you're overseeing the campaign and all of the moving parts. So um, you're sort of the liaison between the client and the agency. So you're making sure the client's needs are getting um, communicated to the creatives. And then you're also making sure that the creative's objectives and uh, their goals 
are being communicated back to the the client um, and in the same at the same time you're just making sure that all of the moving parts that are needed um, come in at the time that they're supposed to and um, the way that they've been discussed um, and there's a lot of review in terms of reviewing the creative before it goes to the client reviewing the creative before it goes out so um, yeah that was um, that was a I really enjoyed the role. It was such a steep learning curve for me at first, so because I don't know if you're if you uh, are aware of this, I'm not sure how what your exposure has been like, but there's an acronym and there's a name for everything in the advertising world. Oh and no, really? <laughs> CPM? Like oh, can we can we like keep a, going? A KPI? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's a totally different language, so that took a while for me to get used to. But once I got the hang of it. Um, uh, you know, it just, it just became more and more enjoyable and more fun. And Union was such an amazing place to work. The culture was so great. Um, the agency building that they were in on Wellington was just so cool. And yeah, I loved it. I really loved it. Did you ever try Googling some of those acronyms? Because sometimes you get the right definition and other <laughs> times, sometimes that acronym overlaps with another acronym in another industry that happens to be more popular than <laughs> what Google's finding for you. I had to Google everything all the time. And sometimes I would just have to ask and be like, what does this mean? Um, so luckily I had a friend who worked there. Um, she's the one who told me about the position. So I could go to her and be like, what does this mean? <laughs> what does this stand for? <laughs> uh, yeah. And so from there I went to We Charity and I was the partnership manager there. And then a senior partnership manager at Retail 360, and it was the exact same role. They just call it something different. So, um, you know, uh, just project and relationship management, overseeing um, um, marketing activations for partners. And I that was with both roles. There's a lot of stress involved. There's a lot of pressure, but there's, there's also like. Um, so many amazing things that you get to do. So for Cadillac Fairview, um, I was the partnership manager for Cadillac Fairview and we, and I produced a 10 part video series and directed it um, with Mark Signanen, who went on to win Canada's drag race as Priyanka. So um, that was an amazing experience. And those videos turned out really well. It was called From Backpack to Briefcase. So I was asked to do the project. Um, and luckily I had that TV um, experience. So I kind of knew exactly what was needed and what needed to be done. So it turned out pretty well. And there was a great crew there, big, really great video production crew at we like world class, really, really talented people working there. Um, yeah. For our listeners who don't know what the We Group is, can you just kind of give us the elevator picture, just a quick summary? Uh, we Charity activated um, in different places around the world. They had We Villages in uh, Africa, and they did Meet We Chocolate in Ecuador, and We the Villages in. Um, uh, Africa, not only it, it was all about building sustainability, so um, providing community communities with clean water, um, education, um, ways to grow their own food industry um, so that they could become self-sufficient um, eventually. And then the need a we was the social enterprise. So um, creating uh, Rafiki's in, in Africa with with the mamas there, Roxanne Joyelle, uh, headed up that and that was just an amazing amazing um endeavor and changed so many lives for the better and then they created award-winning chocolate that was produced in ecuador um, by communities there so um yeah they did really really great work internationally let's bring everything full circle to where you are now so I, i've got a couple of questions about this so where did the idea 
not where did the idea come from to write the book, but talk me through the process. Like you get up one day and you decide, okay, you know what? I've been mulling writing a book for a while. How does that start? Do you just grab your computer and say chapter one? Do you write out a template? Like what is the starting point? Right. Well, to go back a little bit, the starting point for me truly was um, sort of the catalyst for it was when I was a single mother. I'm, I haven't been a single mother for about six years now. Um, but when I was, you know, it was it was really difficult at times in terms of juggling my career, my work and having a young child. And so for me, my outlet, my self-care outlet was always yoga. I was always a yoga practitioner from the time I was in my early 20s. Um, and so that was my go-to in terms of um, self-care for my, for not only physically, but mentally, I always found yoga to be a huge source of, of therapy for me because there is so much meditation involved in yoga. Um, so from yoga, um, I, I joined a meditation group and it was just sort of an extension of that. And we met once a week and we meditated um, for three hours uh, once a week. And so that was extremely healing for me. It was life-changing for me, actually. So then when I moved to Toronto, and that was in Chatham, when I moved back to Toronto, I just I just knew in my heart that I was supposed to start my own meditation group. And so I did, and we would meet once a week from my living room, and um, I've been working. And there's people that have come and gone, but I've been working with the same core group of people um, since the beginning. And it's been really transformational. And I was actually working at We, uh, Me to We. And I was just sitting at my desk one day and uh, the, the idea literally just popped into my head. I was like, you know what? I really should create a meditation journal and record these meditations and write them down and, and offer them uh, to as many people as possible because I was seeing such benefits for everyone in the group. And I just uh, thought it would be really great and really needed to offer it um, to as many people who, who are interested in it. Going back to your production passion, you're trying to, like, correct me if I'm wrong, you're trying to, you're working to get a children's show off the ground. Talk to me a little bit about what you're trying to do, because my experience with children's shows are that they got to sell merchandise. Like, obviously, yeah. they're there to serve a purpose, but there's got to be a toy connected back to it. Like, I'm thinking Paw Patrol. I'm thinking some of the other shows <laughs> that are on right now where it's just like everything's got to come back to toys. They can't just sell the show. So it seems like the avenue you're trying to go doesn't really lend itself to merchandising very well. I could be wrong. Please correct me. But talk. Well, us I think you're wrong. I think you're wrong. Please. No, 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 no. <laughs> tell me, please. Well, actually, no, I, I'm definitely yeah. wrong because you are doing that with children's meditation, but I guess there's no action figures involved with this one, right? Is that safe to no. say? Oh yeah, that's safe to say. So, um, yeah, so that was, um, during the pandemic, I did a series of meditations for kids and they're on YouTube. Uh, they're available through my website actually. And all I could think of was all these kids um, who didn't have the same freedoms and they couldn't really play outside like they used to. So all of the meditations are sort of rooted and grounded in nature and offer really beautiful imagery of nature and just teach kids how to connect to their breath in order to self-regulate and to calm themselves and find a sense of peace. And so um, it was actually from these kids' meditations, this project that I was working on. Um, I was teaching part-time at George Brand and working on these meditations during the pandemic. And then I had this show idea, the same thing, just sort of like pop into my head. And um, the show that I pitched, so it was actually picked up by a production company um, 
that I, I, I worked with them. I developed it with them all last year. And unfortunately, it wasn't picked up in terms of the uh, the cycle that it was pitched to. But um, I'm going to try to still uh, see if it if there's interest in it. I'm going to continue to pitch it on my own and, and to get it out there because I really believe that the premise of the show and what it offers is so needed. Um, it's it's all about showing kids interacting with nature and the host is actually a big willow tree and the show is called willow and friends and so willow in my mind willow is a big muppet tree and she's sort of but she's like mobile like big bird um and she's got her hair is like this loose flowing weeping willow tree uh branches and so she interacts with the kids in nature and you know we see kids with their hands in the in creeks like picking up stones and while the kids are really interacting uh with mother earth willow is giving them a little lesson but it's in the form of a conversation so she's teaching them how all of the water is interconnected on the planet and why it's so important that we care for our water systems and and be good stewards of of water on on earth um and then we have a a story section where um the the stories are told um orally in oral tradition and as the stories are told there's beautiful imagery that comes on the screen and there's different um, indigenous stories from all around the, the the world that are told during story time and they teach the kids about good morals good values um and and things like that so you know like the old tales that that we might remember um the moral of the story tales from when we were kids so bringing that back but um from Indigenous uh, traditions, um, tying into, you know, uh, the connection with, with our planet. And then we have a movement section, which leads the kids through mind, mindful movement. And then at the very end, we have a meditation section where Willow comes and I pitch it as I'm leading the, the kids meditation section. And it's a short two or three meditation with Willow. And we're just teaching the kids um, through meditation, um, all about self-love, um, loving the environment, loving our family. So, so that's the premise. And to me, even if it, even if it's, if it's a cartoon, um, there's lots of opportunity to, um, you know, to have toys and have a beautiful little willow toy and um, different characters from the show. So that was my, that was my original premise for it. And um, really teaches kids how to regulate um, socially and regulate their own emotions through nature um, and through meditation and mindful movement. Take me through the pitch process a little bit. Like, do you do you fund a pilot prod, uh, pilot episode or, or some sort of like sample of a pilot out of your own pocket? Do you go in with storyboards? How do you get them? How do you translate what you just said to us, to them in the boardroom or the, the producers or the production company? Yeah. So um, I created a pitch Bible. And so I had images. Wait, did I, you say I, pitch Bible? That, yeah, that's, that sounds very Bible. big and thick. <laughs> They can be sometimes. Uh, mine wasn't too, too bad. But, you know, it consists of writing uh, a lot of episode concepts um, to really give a good idea of what the show flow would be like. Um, character development, writing bios for the different uh, section hosts, um, creating the concept. And so it's about sourcing images and videos, anything that can give whoever's looking at it that sort of sense of what you're trying to accomplish. Um, I don't think it's very common for people to to create their own um, pilots. It might be done. Um, so from there, the production company saw the pitch Bible. They really liked it. They said yes. And then we developed it out uh, further. Um, they're, they, you know, they're, they're obviously the experts, so they put their own spin to it. And then it also 
required uh, me coming up with a lot of concepts for interactive online space to accompany the show, which is what a lot of networks are looking for as well. Mm. So, um, you know, my husband's a creative in the advertising world. And so he, he helped me with a, quite a few really brilliant ideas in terms of um, the back end, the interactive stuff. So that was lots of fun. Shayla, this has been fantastic. Are you ready for rapid fire questions? <laughs> okay, I'm ready. Your favorite movie? My favorite movie used to be True Romance with Patricia Arquette and Christian Slater. But I, I don't know what, what I was thinking back then, but I watched it recently and it's so violent. I cannot say that that's my favorite movie anymore. Um, that one I have to, oh, I love Always Be My Maybe. I love that movie. <laughs> my family always uh, laughs at me because I'm kind of geeky, but I will watch that movie like once a month if I have the opportunity. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? I think I would want Kate Hudson, again, because she's such a free spirit. I think she's really mindful and cool. And I follow her on Instagram and her family just seems so lovely. And I love her mom, Goldie Hawn as well. And her dad, I don't know. I'm just a fan of that family. So yeah, probably Kate Hudson. What did you think of her performance in Glass Onion? I thought it was fantastic. It was great. I think she was trying to play Madonna. Not really Madonna, but taking oh. aspects of Madonna. Cause like she wasn't a pop star, but it just felt like, it just felt like the parts of Madonna that aren't part of her musical career were coming out in that character. Like I, I, my uh, wife and I, when we watched it over the holidays, we kept trying to pick on everyone going, okay, you know, this person is supposed to be a parody of this real actor. Like you look at Batista, he kind of seemed like, uh, that, uh, the YouTube guy that just went to jail, Andrew Tate. Like, that's <laughs> what it seemed like. I think so, you're right. Cause it was so familiar and I couldn't, I couldn't place it at the time, but yeah, I think you're right. So my follow-up question to that, if Hollywood were to make that movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Uh, yeah, that'd have to be The Long and Winding Road, because that's what my life has been so far. Your favorite book? Obasan by Joy Kagawa. Your favorite song? Okay, I have two favorite songs. Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin and Under the Bridge by Red Hot Chili Peppers. The best advice you have ever received? you know, some of the best advice I've ever received is to, you know, be true to yourself and be yourself. And sometimes that's really difficult, especially when you're younger. Um, but it's, it's really important to stay true to what you know in your heart. <laughs> I've learned that over the years. My signature closing question, if you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? Oh, if I weren't in media, I would probably be, um, on the Mediterranean somewhere, that's my goal. I wanna live there when I'm older. And I would be um, maybe like leading a yoga retreat or something like that. <laughs> that's my second passion, meditation and yoga. Shayla, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, it's been, it's been my pleasure. Thanks, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.